0: Gunikor erin gadal shas in our Tianga Kahame, me fifth week as a go all as often fifteen false shasha, meal a week as August say, is privileged in our irre the Shastri, Slimlish Nebulil Yokasako Horehit son at Otago Halar. According Dear Friends, let me say at the outset how pleased I am to have been invited to address you here today. Yes, as you have just—you may have had—translated for you, I have been a member of a trade union for over 50 years, and please be assured that I remain fully aware of the purpose and indeed the vital importance of union membership. May I begin by thanking Kevin, Kevin Senior General Secretary of designate of Forcer, for his invitation to speak here this morning at this the annual conference of the European Public Service Union. Your federation, with over its 8 million members across Europe, 200,000 of whom are members of the five Irish trade union affiliations, including ForSA, which is the largest public sector union in this country. When I mentioned that I was 50 years a trade union member, I should also say that my wife has also been a trade union member (laughs) in equity. (laughs) but i'm absolutely delighted that this conference of your federation which is held every five years and which is taking place here in dublin dublin as you may have heard is indeed a city with a proud tradition in the history of the trade union movement just over a hundred years ago the 1913 lockout in Dublin, was a crucible through which members were forced to pass in their struggle for the right to collective representation for the working classes of this country. More than twenty thousand workers were either locked out of their jobs by their employers or went on strike, and it marked a watershed in Irish labour history. The principle of union action and worker solidarity had been firmly asserted that hundred years ago. It was done with courage, but at a great cost from even the most vulnerable. But I'm happy to say that within a decade, union membership and organisation had not only recovered, but significantly increased. And as President of Ireland in the last seven years, I have been privileged to be asked to speak in the past of so many many times of the role of Jim Larkin, James Connolly, and others of trade unionists and particularly in the last year or two, of the neglected women trade unionists and their importance to our history in the late 19th and early 20th century. And while drawing strength and courage from the exemplary bravery and determination and leadership given by these individuals, and indeed from more contemporary figures like Mary Manning, the shop worker from Irish grocery cha- chain on stores, who in 1984 refused to handle the sale of fruit from South Africa in protest at the apartheid regime. The Labour movement has always drawn its greatest strength from its collective ability, the collective ability and character of its membership, from the hundreds of thousands of people willing to demonstrate solidarity in their workplace, towards their fellow citizens, and towards people all over the world. These were themes I addressed in to rally at the Littleton Lecture on Radio 1, on the lockout of 1913, and again when I gave the second Phelan Lecture on the future of work, and in honour, of course, of Edward Phelan for his work in the ILO. But I so welcome you delegates, Ipsu works hard to deliver better working conditions, improved health and safety and enhanced rights for its members, negotiating best practice agreements that improve the working lives of European public service workers and ensuring quality services thus for citizens. And I know too that a particular concern for Ipsu is the issue of gender inequality, an issue to which I will return. As we meet, I am aware that public services, on which all citizens rely, are under increasing strain from budget cuts, liberalisation, austerity, low pay and poor working conditions. Then too, globally, tax avoidance by multinationals, impacts on the sustainability of public finances, thus in turn impacting on public services. Being a union member is so important. The role that EPSU plays in standing up for the rights of citizens, including migrants, both in the workplace and in the services, your members deliver, is also critical in ensuring that the most vulnerable citizens in our countries are protected from exploitation. I welcome the, the fact that Congress will also shortly debate a motion in relation to migrant work. These are challenging times for workers and those who represent them. Yet I believe in what I have to say this morning, that they are also full of new opportunities. In Ireland, only one in four workers are now members of a trade union, of whom over half are public service workers. This reflects a decline in private sector trade union membership. In 1980, almost two thirds of Irish workers were members of trade unions. However, there are encouraging signs that this trend is now being reversed with evidence of new recruitment in new sectors. The trade union movement, we must continually remind ourselves, emanates from a powerful, proud tradition from which, in turn, civil rights movements, the anti-apartheid movement, equal rights movements could call inizio for their support and it is important i have to say as president of ireland that we acknowledge that on all parts of this island the role of the trade union movement from its very beginnings down to this morning has been a lead in opposing sectarianism <clears throat> the trade union movement has also we remind ourselves has also been an international one and it correctly sees, as Edward Phelan did in his day, for example, in his Harris lecture with John Maynard Keynes in 1931, that migrating unemployment from one setting to another, effectively positioning wage levels in competition with each other, is a downward spiral, a spiral that could be disastrous for global economies. In our more recent times, too, it is acknowledged. That an over-reliance on the economic orthodoxy of today, with limited space allowed to discover new knowledge, the dogged adherence to what we know to be bogus expertise, all have played their part in the unfolding and the response to the economic and social catastrophe that was the great recession into which this country with others was plummeted just a decade ago. In these times, our new circumstances require a real accountability which must come from a higher degree of economic literacy on the part of all of us if such mistakes are to be avoided and recurring once again. We need a new recovered political economy. We require it to be allowed to be taught in third-level institutions and to be allowed to inform policy. And this requires, I suggest, Consideration of a new ecological social paradigm based on economic heterodoxy, such as that proposed by Professor Ian Gough and others, and that recognises the limits of the world's natural resources, as well as the role that unrestrained greed has played in creating the climate crisis. How well he has titled his book, Heat, Greed, and Human Need. Gough outlines how the alternative paradigm is rooted in the concept of human need over greed. It espouses gender equality, redistribution, and a reconfigured social consumption and investment strategy that transfers resources and technology, for example, from rich countries to developing countries as the key means to achieve the eco-social welfare state. (laughs) The eco-social policies that underpin such an economic paradigm must simultaneously pursue equity social justice and sustainability sufficiency goals within an activist innovation state with substantial public investment and greater regulation and better planning. Furthermore, socioeconomic measures are also required to offset any regressive impacts of the ecological transition on lower income groups and to reverse growing levels of inequality. It is opposite that the the theme of your Congress is fighting for a union for all, and such a title calls to mind and privileges, of course, the notion of inclusivity. While Ireland has been at the forefront of truly enormous social change in recent years, which has advanced inclusivity, it has yet to achieve an acceptable level of cohesion, as is the case in much of the European Union, results from several recently heard referenda on issues such as divorce, marriage equality, and abortion rights, held a more progressive and inclusive modern Ireland on the level of personal or identity issues, one which espouses compassion and tolerance over judgmentalism and shame. Such progress demonstrates an increasingly liberal and secular society with an emphasis on personal freedom. I would argue that this move towards an articulation of the desire for individual rights can be made perfectly compatible with the objectives of social cohesion, social connectedness and the move towards an eco-social model which I advance in this speech. Unfortunately, however, I am struck by a growing divergence between such social progress at the level of personal freedoms on the one hand and the speed at which the country and many others globally are proceeding with regard to social equity or labour policy, and in particular workers' rights and conditions. The challenge is to bridge the gap, to see how the personal is best secured in the equitable, best secured in the equitable that is allowed for all citizens in all circumstances. And that leads me... to to the question of the future role of the International Labour Organisation, to which I've referred already, the only surviving international institution that was created from the ashes of World War I, which in its constitution refers to social justice as being essential to lasting universal peace. In our present circumstances, almost 100 years after that constitution was first proclaimed, its spirit of idealism and of vital moral purpose is more urgently required now more than ever, yet it is seriously undermined. It begs the question of how is the ILO to rededicate itself to its founding mission in the context of an ongoing assault on workers' rights. I believe that the founding message given expression in an achievable agenda of the ILO must be vigorously brought to the attention of the world by all of us, who believe, all of us who believe in equity and the dignity of work. How much better it would be if the necessary elements of what constituted social cohesion was forming the basis of the discourse that prevailed today in the streets of the world, rather than the excluded being abandoned to become the prey of xenophobes, homophobes and racists. And being positive, I suggest that all the prevailing ruling concepts in our present economic discourse, flexibility, globalization, productivity, innovation, social protection, decent work, are capable of being redefined, of given a shared moral resonance made useful within the context of an ecological social paradigm. On the subject of ecology, It cannot be denied that the most pressing issue facing all of us as a global community and inhabitants of a planet that is in peril, owing to the insatiable unrestricted consumption of the Earth's finite natural resources since the onset of the Anthropocene, but accelerated so much in the last 250 years. I speak, of course, of the climate crisis. And let me say first that I see the role of public servants as being transformative in acting as champions for climate action, both in terms of mitigation and adaptation. Public servants have the capacity, if given a real opportunity, to shape and implement policies in these spheres that will reduce the impact of climate change and enable society to adapt to the most destructive effects of a changing climate, which we are already beginning to witness firsthand through, for instance, the increased severity and frequency of storms and extreme weather events. There exists now a great opportunity to give leadership and for trade unions, as progressive institutions, to play a strong role in pushing for fair, ambitious and binding international agreements on greenhouse gas emission reduction targets. Trade unions can give leadership In achieving these targets in a sustainable and equitable way and while the European Union has set a binding emissions targets for 2020 and 2030 we must now plan for full decarbonisation of our European economies by 2050 thus encouraging the rest of the world to follow suit and urging in the strongest possible measure the current United States administration to reconsider its regressive and pernicious decision to leave the Global Paris Agreement. As I wrote this sentence, I felt it necessary to write immediately after it. There are citizens of the United States who care about climate change and sustainability, and they are our sisters and brothers and our allies in this regard. Unions can seize the opportunity of providing a lead role in developing a strategy for a just transition for workers and communities to ensure that we're all part of a sustainable low carbon economy and benefit from decent and green jobs. In Ireland, this will mean that those impacted by the closure of unsustainable carbon intensive electricity production, for example, must be offered reskilling opportunities to enable them to find suitable jobs in other areas, such as the green economy, are upskilling opportunities that can achieve sustainable incomes in other parts of the society. As a young economist told me last week, skills are the currency of the 21st century. It is my strong belief that the trade union movement can create a creative and enduring future for its members now and in the future, by becoming a key proponent of models such as Ian Goff's new eco-social political economy, emphasising responsible economics, understanding that the concept of a never-accelerating growth ad infinitum is not only inherently flawed, it is unsustainable. We must recover, all of us in public life, a discourse that has fallen prey to an uncritical embrace of neoliberal mantras, and that advocates an economic. We must advocate for economic models of pluralism, which respect the finite nature of the Earth's natural resources and accepts the role that rich nations must play in ameliorating the crisis in which we find ourselves. As Professor Goff put it himself, consumption and consumption-based emissions, ignored by the green growth agenda, must be given equal priority in the rich world. Issues of global equity, almost entirely absent from international climate negotiations so far, must be discussed and confronted. Affluence has a class as well as a national dimension. The case that Professor Goff makes is impressive. Combining these concerns of domestic justice with both international and intergenerational justice in a global equity framework is one worthy of consideration by all partners, one worthy, the belief of being given leadership by the trade unions. Who better to do it? Such a framework which is founded on a needs-based society could have a conjoined positive effect on the multiple crisis in which the global community now finds itself. It also implies that that form of capitalism without responsibility as to consequences that we have come to know, it suggests moving beyond growth to a steady-state sustainable economy and this begs the question as to whether the transition route to sustainable well-being is achievable. Everything depends as scholars such as Goff and Klein and others have identified on the nature, variability, flexibility and reformability of capitalism. Your conference indeed has such a good agenda on all these topics. Your trade union has correctly placed gender equality As one of its core objectives, I believe that in order for unions to credibly fight for the promotion of gender equality in the workplace, there first must be greater gender equality within union structures themselves. (laughs) I also see the inclusion of gender issues in collective bargaining as being fundamental given the ongoing gender pay gap. Related to this is a wider objective, of protecting vulnerable marginalised workers, many of whom are women, many of whom are migrants. These groups need the strongest voice. Sylvia Woolby has argued in her book Crisis that the economic and fiscal crisis through which we have lived over the past decade and the resulting recession, experienced severely in Ireland, has cascaded through society and the ensuing fiscal crisis over government budget deficits and austerity has led to a political crisis, which in turn now threatens to become a democratic crisis. Born unevenly, the effects of the crisis are exacerbating existing class and gender inequalities. There is considerable underused, underutilised capacity in the economy as a consequence of the failure to encourage the completion of the transition in the gender regime from a domestic to a public form. This incomplete transition is at least in part because of the priority accorded to developing a neoliberal rather than a social democratic form. Wolby argues that the future consequences of the crisis depend on whether there is a deepening of democracy and of democratic institutions, including within the European Union. Within such considerations must be the issue of the relation of the economy to social policy. And the definition of the role of the economy as an instrument or determinant of public good and globalization is a topic to which i have found it necessary to return frequently in my speeches i have found it necessary in terms of asking whether it is not a key conundrum that has not been solved by most governments globally it relates to how we can make globalization work for citizens when what has been its form, its presentation so far, lacks legitimacy among much of the citizenry of the world. In other words, is an ethical, sustainable form of globalization possible? Naomi Klein is among others who have shown how corporations have unethically exploited workers in the world's poorest countries, often those with appalling human rights records, in pursuit of greater profits. Klein has written in her book that what now famous No Logo, when manufacturing is so highly devalued, it follows that the people doing the production work become highly devalued as well. The shift in corporate priorities has left factory workers and craftspeople in a precarious position. The lavish spending in the 1990s on marketing mergers and brand extensions has been matched by resistance to investing in production facilities and labour. Multinationals search the globe for factories that can make their products as cheaply as possible. And by contracting out manufacturing work, multinationals can shed all responsibility for the working conditions inside these factories. The contracting allows multinationals to refocus on the needs of their brands as opposed to the needs of their workers. It follows that left unchecked, such a form of globalisation will lead and is leading to a wider gap between rich and poor, with the poor getting poorer. Globalisation clearly tests rights that may have been at face value and even multilaterally formally agreed to achieve an acceptance across borders as minimally ethical. Globalisation and its impact requires to be managed by accountable multilateral institutions, so that it, for example, supports fundamental human rights, leads to long-lasting sustainable development and prosperity for citizens in general, particularly the poorest. The trade union movement has played, must continue to play, and will be called upon to play, again, a leading role, so that workers are not made the casualties of globalisation, but rather alternatively, that globalisation is made to work for the world's workers and all of our global citizens. And as to the task of de- redefining work itself, which you will discuss, we are also witnessing increases in precarious employment, contract working, and an ongoing casualization of labour, as has been so well documented by Guy Standing, Noam Chomsky and others. The new emerging trends in work practices, sometimes called innovations, are only innovations in a very... And particularly narrow way to my mind in as they propose to maximize profits for employers and reduce employees labor rights. I see this trend as part of an inexorable race to the bottom and I believe that regulation is required in order to protect those most vulnerable in society from being exploited as a result of the most adverse effects of these new models of work. For example, Dr. Patrick pa- pa- Pastor- Carmody has recently shown in very important recent research on casualisation and tax provision, how ride-sharing and virtual capital have resulted in what he calls a hollowing out of the formal sector and a rise in the so-called precarious worker. Whereas many speak of the sharing economy, a more accurate way to describe it might be the on-demand economy. Where firms divest themselves of their responsibilities to employees, reducing the structural power of labour. This represents an undermining of any social contract between the parties. And then there are, two, one must consider, how an abuse of digitalisation is drawn to assist in this regard. We, now, we see now online workers, often that are not covered by employment law or collective agreements and seldom have access to social security, paid leave, or paid training, owing to the fact that the platforms require workers to register as self-employed. These recent developments in the world of work are nothing less than a recrudescence of some of the worst practices of the 19th century. The coordination and direction of employees by an algorithm owned and operated by a company, should never be allowed to divest the employer of their responsibility any less than a bogus self-employment does. After all, one of the great victories of the trade union movement in the past was the regulation of piecework. These old practices must not be allowed to re-emerge under the cloak of supposed innovation. It must remain an important objective of the left and of unions to reverse the systematic neglect and devaluation of working-class lives. The ongoing displacement of secure, certain regular employment to achieve which trade unions were established after all by uncertain precarious jobs and characteristic chronic insecurity is a major cause for concern. Workers are too often expected to demonstrate what is called flexibility by which is meant a willingness and ability to readily respond to changing circumstances and expectations without adequate information or recompense. This flexibility is often not matched, however, with any security of tenure or appropriate income by employers, with the vista of zero-hour contracts now appearing ever more prevalent an uncritical globalisation, pursued without consideration as to impact or social consequences. It can be shown as a negative effect, of course, on climate change. More goods being produced and consumed, more transport of goods across longer distances, shorter product obsolescence cycles, more consumerist and materially driven societies. They all come at a significant price in terms of the impact on finite natural resources and greenhouse gas emissions. I haven't spoken of the softer impacts of globalization, such as cultural homogenization, as well as adverse effects on local communities and economies. For this is perhaps one of the greatest problems with globalization. Macroeconomist exponents can all too easily evaluate the economic benefits of globalization if narrowly calculated on aggregate across countries, but fail to capture the harder, to, harder to quantify negative intangibles to which I have been referring, I must say I was heartened to read in the recent World Bank report "Efficiency" that even that organisation, hardly a bastion of left-wing social democratic thinking, now believes that there is justification in going beyond efficiency and fostering more inclusive growth globally after decades of mainstream economic commentary, espousing the virtues of privatization, deregulation, and a smaller role for the state. What I think was the destruction of epistemic plurality in third-level colleges, where you could not have certain paths to knowledge, there was only the one. We now appear to be at a turning point in the economics discourse. Thanks to brave, insightful contributions of economists like Ingle, Marianne Mazzacato on Sylvia Walby. And Marianne Mazzacato in her books, The Entrepreneurial State and the Value of Everything, effectively rebukes the austerity-fueled worldview that in order to restore growth after the 2008 financial crisis, all that was needed was to reduce deficits by cutting public spending, arguing instead that government investment in areas like education, research and technology is a key component of economic growth. And even in orthodox institutions, as the less-than-radical International Monetary Fund, have slowly evolved even their thinking on austerity as a strategic tool, believing that it can be self-defeating, as indeed it was. As Keynes argued over 80 years ago, if governments cut spending during a downturn, a short-lived recession can become a fully-fledged depression. This is precisely what occurred in Ireland when the economic recession of 2008 turned into an economic depression in 2009 and an economic recovery delayed until 2014. This prolongation and intensification of the economic bust resulted in a deepening of the experience of as well as a widening of the exposure to a range of attendant social ills that were a direct result of a prolonged period of constrained underinvestment by the state, many of which have not yet been resolved. Long before Mazzucato and the spiritual fathers of creative thinking in the public sector, John Maynard Keynes and Polanyi, called on policymakers not just to think about countercyclical spending as a way to reduce the impacts of recessions and avoid overheating economies but to think strategically to identify how investments can help shape citizens' long-term prospects for the better. Polanyi went on to argue in The Great Transformation that free markets themselves are products of state interventions, outcomes of public and private actions. And this astute observation became inconveniently forgotten in much of the austerity-based, neoliberal commentary around that recent economic crisis and i was referred to as an academic i was proud to be a university teacher but i am appalled at the paucity of thinking and intellectual work in the formation of young economic students who are, should be allowed access to pluralist thinking not the single single failing rut of one economy. Mitchell and Fass reclaiming the state. In the contemporary context of Brexit, Britain and Trump's America, with national sovereignty high in the gender, that the state must be reclaimed if we are to transform societies for the people's benefit. Yes, the role of the state must be recovered. Despite the ravages of liberalism, the state still holds the capacity and much of the resources for democratic control of a nation's economy and finances. The author adv- authors advocate a new paradigm of economic heterodoxy, in which ideas are grounded in post-Keynesian institutionalist, feminist, social, and importantly, ecological economics. This is an epistemological challenge, by which I mean the knowledge system you use. Well, what I have been given, th- th- there has been little less than an epistemicide in relation to some of the third-level colleges. This is an epistemological challenge of the neoclassical economic orthodoxy that espouses with rigidity the assumptions of rationality individualism as the equilibrium nexus. As an alternative, the new thinking offers economics dealing with institutions, history, social structure nexus. This is the form of political economy discourse that is most promising. Young and not so young academics are struggling for its right to be taught, as I have said, in universities and institutions all over the world. And reclaiming the state is a work that called for a drastic expansion in the state's role. While the authors include a broad renationalization of specific sectors of the economy, notably the financial sector, Mitchell and Fancy also call for a new and updated notion of planning, one which places the commanding heights of economic policy under democratic control to enable the urgently needed socio-ecological transformation of production and society to happen. The latter project, however, needs to be presented not simply as a resile to the previous models of renationalisation. This would clearly be insufficient in the context of new challenges, I suggest. The role of the State needs to be defined anew, as well as the concept of sovereignty in such a way that it is shared can flow for the benefit of workers beyond borders, can become, it is a transition taking place, for after all, the transition is taking place in several countries. And it can have a regional character, one that could become exemplary to global economic systems. Any narrowly defined concept of productivity either, capture in a simplistic way, merely the efficiency of production, utilising the four factors of production, while it may be important to understand in an increasingly competitive enterprise environment, is an insufficient concept when examined from a labour productivity perspective. It is problematic because growth in labour productivity often does not lead to commensurate improvements in the income or lives of workers, as evidenced from studies conducted by the late Tony Atkinson and others. It is instead captured by the owners of capital itself often now speculative rather than productive. This is not only inequitable, but it places a value on the role of capital that is far higher than other factors of production, such as labour and entrepreneurship, and is inherently volatile, given its speculative nature. Such volatility has clear downstream impacts on labour markets in instances in which speculative capital does not perform in the markets as well as envisaged resulting inevitably in the need to cut back on other factors of production, with labour being the most easily adjusted, assisted or disposed of in increasingly flexible labour markets. As I won't come to the end, I want to revisit briefly, if I may, the concept of work itself. Andrea, in her recent book, Work the Last 1000 Years, argues that the often limited definition and classification of work has never corresponded to the historical experience of most people, whether in colonies, developing countries or the industrialised world. She says, the gap between common assumptions and reality grows even more pronounced in the case of women and other groups excluded from the labour market. I am minded to revisit the related philosophical concept of the dignity of labour much advocated by Gandhi, in which all types of jobs are respected equally no occupation is considered superior and none of the jobs should be discriminated on any basis is this not the ethic of work in the public service for the public good i believe a corollary of this concept is that a return to the fundamentals of decent secure jobs would be a widespread increase in job satisfaction a better sense of accomplishment and improvements in the quality of life across nations a vision in which these concepts become more embedded in the citizenry and in particular employers is perhaps a provocative even radical as it attempts to upturn the commonly held assertion that money and wealth accumulation is the primary motivation behind human's desire to work. The fact that there was never any empirical basis for this has never bothered many of its propagandists. There is in addition a significant, growing and important part of economic research focusing on the marginal utility of income, the incremental change in satisfaction that is due to a unit change in income, which shows that satisfaction peaks at relatively modest income levels and that steep, diminishing marginal returns are evident as people's preference for additional leisure time becomes higher than their preference for additional income. Robert and Edward Skidelsky's book, How Much is Enough, Money and the Good Life, is a spirited argument against blindly accepting the Faustian bargain of insatiability within contemporary cl- capitalism. We need, he put it, to focus much less on making money and much more on cultivating the things that matter, leisure, knowledge, friendship. It appears that the older days money doesn't bring happiness is a truism, that even economists can now demonstrate empirically. And however, the young of the world, with their proximity to each other, to nature, to the joy of shared culture, are well ahead of all of these writers. And so also were all those trade union members who sang anthems of their unions behind banners as they marched on Saturdays in the past, creating a society that is more equal, one in which all work is valued and all jobs are decent and fulfilling is not an easy task given the current milieu. However, the political economic concept of deliberative democracy provides us with a means with which we can discuss this, engage, and promote such a vision across the citizenries of Europe. Jürgen Habermas has written persuasively on this, asserting that political decisions should be the product of fair and reasonable discussion among citizens. It follows, therefore, that we must become more aware as citizens about the often obscured or consciously hidden ideological assumptions that are offered behind policy choices. This means that we need to foster, I repeat again, universal political economic literacy to deal with new and existing challenges and a better understanding of the nature of value and what constitutes happiness and public welfare. As part of a coordinated discourse, trade unions have a crucial role in ensuring... The Government's labour policies are ethically grounded, but unions also have a role in realising this vision of a more ethically minded citizenry and a new eco-social economic paradigm, the components of which I have been offering in this speech. And One of the ways in which we do this is to re-establish or embed or enhance Glaucon's social contract between the citizen and the state, something which has been heavily eroded in much of Europe following decades of attack from a prevailing neoliberal orthodoxy, eroding labour rights through laissez-faire policy and an almost fetishised embrace of unfettered globalisation. Trade unions have a vital role in turning this tide, advocating a rights-based approach to quality work, engaging in the deliberative, democratic process, giving a lead. And what are the lessons we've learned? I believe that there are many in policy when it comes to the myth of the self-regulating market. I believe there are many lessons in politics, policy-making, academia that I've mentioned, the commentariat, citizens at large, who have turned a corner, having re-evaluated often strongly held beliefs with an appreciation that the state has an important role, that good regulation does matter, be it in the financial construction or healthcare sectors. All sectors which we in Ireland have seen the catastrophic and sometimes tragic effects of under-regulation or lack of enforcement. My vision, dear friends, is of a Europe with excellent public service at its core. Good jobs in the public sector means quality services for citizens. And you members appreciate only too well that the services they deliver are not a cost to society, but an investment in our communities. And this message must be taken to the heart of Europe. And at the very end I say this, the centrality of individualism as a source of values, with its emphasis on individual consumption, individual acquisitiveness, insatiable acquisitiveness, wealth accumulation, ill-informed hostility to the state and its institutions and those who work in them, has had a corrosive effect on our lives. I hope that we're on a pathway of learning as peoples across Europe, that we must abide the excessive materialism that was apparent, for example, in this country itself, too, in the the so-called Celtic Tiger, and that we move away from narcissistic individualism and towards collective solidarity. And neither should there be any notion, may I suggest with humility, to trade union leaders. There should never be a notion of a former member. Being a trade union member from the moment of joining and belonging and sharing is a life choice anticipated by the young, (laughs) cherished to the end, and always it is the case. And that is why people will introduce themselves and say, we were union people. And several global studies, such as the World Happiness Report, as well as qualitative research, such as that by Esping Anderson clearly demonstrate that those countries that manage to foster this collective solidarity, that abide by the principle of a strong social contract, that believe in the benign and even transformative possibilities of the state and its institutions, that provide universal social protection, all report the highest quality of life and life satisfaction using both objective and subjective measurements. Dear friends, it has been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for your invitation. Mila Buikas.